Despite first clashing Randy Sadly and Chris Warner's uh, title of comic book in 1989, it won't be a year later in the release of Predator 2 with its cheeky use of an alien skull in the trophy case of the Predator that the interest in combining the two horror icons, both the Xenomorph from Alien and the Yudhya from Predator, would be seen as being brought together. And it was really the that Predator Alien skull that saw the idea really start to gain momentum. However, at the same time, it would still be stuck in development hell for a further 10 years until Anderson himself pitched his own script, but would Paul W.S. Anderson really be the right director to bring this clash between the two iconic monsters to the screen. I'm Howard. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. Okay, uh, well, first of all, welcome back everyone to uh, another edition of Movies and Tea. Uh, we had a little bit of a break. neutered because it had a lower age rating than their previous films which were all 18 this was a 15 here in the uk and also at the same time that the violence in particular was really sort of held back and many blamed anderson of this because they linked it to what he had done with resident evil where it's very annoying should we say uh kind of ways for it for its violence but i mean kim what did you obviously make of Alien vs. Predator, I know that you're obviously more a fan of the Alien saga than the Predator saga. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I honestly, um, I thought AVP was very enlightening, to be honest. <laughs> it's the second time I'm watching it. Yeah, it's not like, you know, the best movie is in, like, there's a lot of bad acting and a lot of weird dialogue. Um, but uh, that kind of pulls the movie down. But if you think about, like, the story that it builds, um, maybe because I haven't seen Predator 2, uh, that the story meant a little bit more to me because, like, it felt like I was starting to understand who these predators were a lot more. Um, I'm going to be, like, full disclosure that while I do like Predator a lot, I'm not, like, a huge, huge fan. Like, I've seen it once or twice, and I kind of make fun of it a little every once in a while, uh, you know, which which gets my husband a little bit riled up because it's, like, one of his favorite movies. Um <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, like, I think this is really great because you finally get to see who these predators are. and You really get to see what kind of villain um, xenomorphs and predators are, where, like, as you watch this movie, you start realizing that xenomorphs are more like animals. They are instinctive creatures. They act on, you know, impulse and that sort of thing, whereas predators, they actually are a very advanced sort of civilization that seems to have reached Earth many, many years, light years ago, when they are before they were all like, you know, because of that, the predators have such a, they have such a focus on, say, like, they have so much strategy and so much like they're hunters. So they really know, uh, they really know how to, 
you know, know their camouflage and know when to attack and be stealth and all that sort of thing. And you really see how smart the race is. And I think that behind all this, you know, the story is really about the the predators finally creating, I guess it's like, um, I guess this would be kind of a spoiler alert, where it's kind of they're creating a hunting ground that they come back to every, uh, I forgot how many hundred years that they come back for. Uh, so it's really interesting to see this. Obviously, I don't know if all this was covered, how intelligent they were and stuff like that uh, in Predator 2. But to me, like, this was really interesting to watch because while it wasn't really, um, uh, I guess, aggressive or very, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? Like, uh, like the, I don't know. I thought it was fine the way it was. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it was okay. There was enough blood. There was, you know, enough disgusting stuff, you know, especially when, like, the the queen xenomorph was like laying her eggs and there was some like really disturbing moments, but obviously like there are things that didn't age well. Um, the CGI for one, like there were these really awkward <laughs> moments. I don't know if they're CGI or practical effects, but they didn't really work that well. Um, you can really see how the movie has aged in that sense, but um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's how it, it, you know, in, on the surface, I think it's it's an okay movie. Like I thought that I'd like the story, but maybe not so much the acting and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is a film which actually gave a lot more sort of. I, I don't know how we can best describe this. It gave us a lot more sort of depth to the the, the creation of the predators. So, if anyone who's obviously like a complete fanboy like myself and read like the comic books and the books and the all the other guns that uh, come to this this family. It's got a really in-depth history uh, that the Predators have and their own sort of codes of honour, which we see bits of in the first two films in how the these Predators act and how they conduct themselves. Um, obviously, the Yucha, to give them their proper nerdy fanboy name, um, are a race of intergalactic hunters who, amongst their many prey, they enjoy hunting humans for sport, as we've seen in Predator 1 and Predator 2, and obviously in Rodriguez's reboot of sort of Predators, which saw them capturing as most sort of dangerous hunt, um, humans, so to speak, and then dump them on their own hunting ground. Uh, this time the focus is obviously with them hunting aliens as another new rite of passage, and as you said, this in this story, the Predators have been coming to Earth every hundred years, and we're led to believe that they're responsible for the destruction of the Mayan dynasty because the Predators have used a sort of a team to formed an alliance with the humans so that the humans are viewing them as God, the Predators as gods, uh, willing, giving themselves willing sacrifice so they could create Xenomorphs on Earth and they would hold this hunt, this hunt every hundred years so that these young Predators can earn their sort of and their bones within the predator sort of standing. So, and if it got to the case where the aliens were winning, that they would just basically nuke the site, and that's what we're led to believe destroyed all the Mayans, which I thought was a really nice sort of touch. Mm -hmm. um, in the story itself, uh, we are set in 2004, and the satellite owned by the um, Wayland Corporation, so we have a nod already to the later alien movies, because it's Wayland and Utami, um, the corporation, like the big evil corporation, want to get their hands on the xenomorph. So at this point, it's just the Wayland Corporation, and 
In particular, it's led by the industrialist Charles Bishop Wayland, here played by Lance Hendrickson, who, of course, would whose likeness would obviously be used to create the Bishop models in, like the Alien, the the line of androids. Uh, I'm going to apologize right now. I'm just going to probably nerd the hell out on this episode. So you're probably going to get a whole bunch of useless information that uh, you're never going to be able to use for anyone, but hopefully you all enjoy it. And yeah, I'm saying Henderson's the only one from the franchise who actually re- returns. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to return, but he had just been elected the governor, so he wasn't free, and Sigourney Weaver wasn't interested in returning to it. She was, at this point, she was pretty much done with the franchise completely, so she was happy just to let it go off and do its own thing. Here in this this sort of alternate sort of timeline, because it's weird when you look at these films in the beginning of 2004, which at the time of release was only a couple of years ahead, so it's kind of weird to have, a, have it now look back and be in sort of an alternate timeline. And uh, basically they discover a pyramid discovery buried in the... I think what this is now. It's in the... Antarctica? Yeah, it's buried in the Antarctica. Um, and they send out a team only to discover that it is actually a secret hunting ground uh, created by the Predators. And uh, they're now returning to do a hunt um, at the same time that this team accidentally managed to unleash all the xenomorphs uh, in the side of the temple. So... It's a... Uh, it's a fun little story. It's a completely different track than the other ones that we've seen. Obviously, in the previous, if we look at like the Alien sagas, it was always sort of the case of uh, either the xenomorph comes comes into contact with the humans, or we stumble into their sort of territory. So it was always the that sort of idea of humans sort of messing with things that they don't understand, um, be it as stumbling into their territory or us bringing them onto our territory. It was always that sort of crossover. And they were sort of like, it was kind of like, a, in many ways, it was the the horror, the haunted house in space movie. Or, uh, whereas the Predator week was always the action movie sort of, sort of standard where we have the tough guy being hunted by the alien badass. Yeah. Um, and the, I mean, the first, um, pre, the first, Predator movie is just basically a balls the wall eighties action movie because we I mean we've got Arnold Schwarzenegger we've got Jesse the Body Ventura we've got all these sort of like staples of eighties action cinema there mm-hmm. and then we just have this twist about halfway through where suddenly it becomes like a sci-fi horror movie uh, <laughs> where it's Arnold's team is just suddenly being hunted by this this alien so I think a lot these these really great the fact that we have these two iconic characters that. You can see how they would they would slot together in each other's world. It's not like like Freddy versus Jason or Freddy versus Michael Myerson. <laughs> those which require a little more like, oh, I'm just going to jostle this around a bit. So that sort of fits in. Um, with the, when you look at like the alien approach, you can see, yeah, those two species would come from a similar sort of world. So it's very easy to slot them together. Um, and, I mean, even removing this film and its sequel Requiem, they've been such a long line of comics and books and stuff that there's a whole alternate history with these two races just battling and they cross over into other uh, worlds such as, I mean, they've appeared in Riverside, so in the Archie comics, they've gone into Judge Dredd, so we've constantly <laughs> seen these, uh, these this battle it has never been limited to just the film world. I mean, they've even turned up in Mortal Kombat for Christ's sake, so... 
<laughs> That's true. Yeah, MKX had it in Mortal Kombat with 10. Yeah. I don't know. I think that, you know, I mean, <laughs> just so we don't have an information overload, we're going to go back to AVP and look at uh, uh, look at a bit of the, you know, this is about Paul W.S. Anderson. So how he chose to approach this movie would be something to definitely look at, which we always do. And obviously there are still some of those staples that he always had that we've always been talking about. He has this like absolute love for like long corridors or something like that, right? <laughs> Yeah. And you got yeah, Della right at the beginning. And I actually think this is one of the coolest corridors because it goes downwards and it slides down and it's just this it looks like intense stuff, you know? Um but I think that one of the things I noticed, which I hadn't noticed the first time I saw this movie, um, was the fact that he kind of brought over a little bit of Resident Evil since that was his previous movie, despite the fact that we did cover all six last time. Yeah. Um that he did bring a little bit of the Resident Evil in because this time he uses um, the Predator's heat signature sort of um, concept uh, and how they had like their home base and then they had their little computer thing on their arm and he would lay with just like they would like show those blueprint maps and then zoom in out and then go back into like the next area like up on the top or something and I thought that was really neat like I always find like I think that as we go through this Anderson journey. It's really interesting to see how every single movie he brings a little bit different, um, something from the previous movie, maybe, or something that he's particularly maybe he particularly loved that sort of aspect that he brings over to the next one. And I think it really adds like his own personal touch to it. I'm not saying like he's the only person who's ever done that sort of concept of map and shift shifting spaces. But I think like to see the connection between the previous movie and this one, I thought it was really neat. Oh, definitely. He loves the map. <laughs> That's for sure. He's, and he, it's such a a great way, the fact that the way he uses, obviously, maps and diagram. We saw it in, obviously, in Event Horizon. Uh, we saw it, as you said, in Resident Evil, especially when we look at the hive. And it's like the perfect way of outlining what the structure is and where any particular characters at one time. And it worked perfectly well, the fact that we can obviously use it, see with the predators, they're using their, their tracking map and they can see where like aliens are, they can see where the humans are. And it's, um, it was really great ideas of sort of like concepts and space. And I have to say again, this is Anderson really fanboying out because we, I mean, we've seen Anderson numerous times fanboy out of his favorite franchise, like Vent Horizon again. There was elements of like Hellraiser in there, um, and The Shining. Um, certainly when you look at like more combat, which is sort of into the dragon and, uh, Resident Evil, it's like, there's so many elements of Romero through that film. And as it went on, it was like, he brought in things such as like the Mad Max element. And it depend he was constantly working his favorite sort of elements from other films into this. And again, we see more horror film homages here. Um, certainly the Wailing Village where we go into. Yeah. It's very much like the thing. Yeah, that's. A, and, I think that's like the first thing you realize. Yeah, and it was only this time I was watching it, and especially the use because they're all using hand flares, so everything's illuminating this red glow, and it's all covered in like a in like frost and ice, and it's all this sort of wreckage of this this former whaling village that um, that we actually, if you watch the director's cut, you actually see the predators turn up and the basically massacring the residents of this wedding village because all we know when you watch standard cut is that the residents just disappeared um nobody knows what happened to them and 
I just love the way he shoots the scene, especially just like a finish on that red glow. It's very deep, intense glow, and you're seeing silhouettes of there. But yeah, if you if you've seen the things, you're just like really go. Oh, you see what he's done there, <laughs> and I can see him just like going. Oh, I really want to have my thing moment. <laughs> work that in. Um, and then when we get into the actual temple itself, it becomes almost like an adventure movie. It reminded me of like yeah. um, the Brendan. Oh, what's his name? Brendan Fraser. Yeah, the Brendan Fraser mummy, yeah. not the Tom Cruise mummy version, because it becomes almost like an adventure movie. You're hearing you it's all like hidden temples and secret passageways and booby yeah. traps and things. I think I went a different direction from you. I went a little okay. bit more in Tomb Raider. Maybe it's because I just had seen the recent Tomb Raider, so I was really into the whole like um, the whole like the temples and how it was like. Like, they were saying, oh, this has, like, uh, Mayan temple, like, Mayan pyramids. And then there was also, you know, they were saying, oh, but it's also kind of, like, Angkor Wat is there also. And it's just kind of, like, you see this and you're kind of, like, wow. Like, it really shows the depth of just that location by itself. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing I love about it, I mean, the temple is that there's no wasted inch of space in any of the things. It's not, like generic tunnel or or passageway every sort of area says its purpose it's like oh here we have the sacrificial chamber here we have like i love especially where they keep the alien queen because yeah. when the temple awakens they like bring her up and she's like been kept in uh in ye olde ice box because she's been frozen <laughs> they like bring her up and uh the temple you see like these uh these pyres come up and these like defrost the the queen and she's there and she's all like chained up and she's basically being stimulated so she's laying eggs that they can use to uh start the alien cycle and obviously give them the xenomorphs that they wish to hunt so i love the uh that there is no wasted space in this you're seeing and you're getting like little hints of how this arrangement worked between the the original the, the makers of this pyramid because we're told it's like different races that have come together so you've got like elements of man you've got egyptian so it's like a real sort of alternate history that is being sort of written there and it, it ties in like with like texts like chariots of the god and this idea that aliens built things such as like the pyramids it, again it's just like that fun little bit of alternate sort of history there in that you've got these three different elements of uh different races that have turned up in this this one temple but the mechanics of Anderson's world, I mean, again, this is another example. Anderson always establishes the rules for his world really well, and he sticks to them. He doesn't make these great leaps in logic because he needs to fudge the story in any way. So you have, like, the arrangement between the Mayans and the Predators of where they would provide sacrifices and how they're view viewing the Predators as being gods. Um, and it makes perfect sense. You know, this would be how you would how the predators could hold xenomorphs and have it in like, have it in a sort of controlled environment for themselves. Um, at the same time, he's not discrediting any of the law that we've seen in the previous films, such as like the fact that the alien, if the predators are defeated in battle, they will blow themselves up because it's an honorable warrior's death. And we see that obviously yeah. as what happens to the Mayans that they basically get numbed. Um, <laughs> because the, the, we have that awesome scene with the, three purposes on top of the pyramid and the battling like the horde of xenomorphs which i think a lot of people were sort of expecting going into this because they use it in the trailers like the climax shot and i think a lot of people were like 
oh my god, this is going to be like what it's going to be. We're going to have all these predators, and there are hundreds of aliens, and like, no, it's it's a little more uh, subdued than that, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, everybody expects like this huge, like you know, war against the predator. I think that yeah. in many, I think in many people's mind, like. Xenomorphs definitely feel like they're more lethal in the sense because they don't they're not like restrained. They just go for it, right? And I think that this kind of like I feel that this kind of changes the dynamic a little. Yeah, they're they're still, you know, obviously the xenomorphs are still um are still very worthy opponents to who they are and that and I feel that, you know, Anderson Ted does a really good take of just building the stories around the creatures that these two alien races that we've learned to know. And I think that, you know, obviously he's a fanboy also because he knows a lot about this stuff to create a story where, like you said, like it follows, it follows a nice uh, storyline and it all makes sense and nothing seems to, you know, be forced and nothing seems to, you know, it shouldn't be there, I guess. It actually, the one thing that felt like, I think that in all the other movies, what happened was that, you know, usually we see we see xenomorphs with humans or the predators with humans. And now it actually feels like the humans, other than the fact that they are the sacrifice, they are incredibly disposable. So you also have like this whole and this is like a huge cast of characters, too. You know, you have a good group of people going down to this thing and they kind of just kind of chop the group up real quick. So it kind of paces really fast and then you you end up having that, you know, that moment of having that uh, that kind of like that final girl sort of uh, that moment. And it's it's interesting to see how all these elements still kind of make the movie really stand out, because I, I don't know, I mean. It feels like these movies always have like an 80s horror idea of having that final girl. And it's like a favorite topic that a lot of these films always have. Certainly when we look at the Alien Saga on its own. I mean, the Alien Saga was one of the first horror movies to really give us a strong female lead that we had with obviously the character Ripley. And it sort of carried across as the Alien Saga has gone on. that You've continuously had strong female leads that have turned up within the saga. When it's come to practice, we've only been the sort of the strong male lead. So it's been obviously mm-hmm. an interesting counterpart. And when we look at obviously the the law of the predators, the predators do actually view have viewed humans on occasion as being um, an honourable race. And we have obviously seen predators team up with humans on numerous occasions, often many against xenomorphs. Because as the film sort of sums up here, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, is uh, the sort of glue that ties this all together. Um, <laughs> this mainly sort of boils down to the fact that we 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 of the three predators. I mean, we originally we were going to get five predators, but in uh, Anton had to whistle it down to three. Um, so we're down to basically the last predator and the last girl standing as as we said our sort of final girl, which in this case is Alexa, um, here played by Sana Latham. Um, I have to say, if we were going to pinpoint any major issue of this film, I would say she is it. Because um, <laughs> they've tried to, they've obviously tried to create the tough female lead here. But at the same time, they don't want to just recreate Ripley. They've, however, gone off the deep end by just creating this headstrong female character who is argumentative with everyone. She's too tough, even to the audience. 
we never see a, any sort of side side that we can sort of associate with so she's always always like this tough girl and like this too much like of a I don't know if it's too clumsy a description just to she's just too much of a bitch basically <laughs> it's just too tough and it's sort of like there's no insight we obviously have these attempts to soften her character where she's like uh talks about climbing uh mountains with her father and her first day for alcohol was on like one of the highest peaks but even that like turns into a story of like oh but my father died of a like a blood clot on the way yeah, down yeah. um so there's never any sort of softness to her character and it only becomes more detrimental when the other characters who sort of balance her out are whittled away yeah i think that i think you have a really good point there i think that it's 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 really she she's really hard to stand behind i think that the idea is there but like you really see her character have a big shift like it shifts all the time in the sense that like it, sh- it I feel like hers her storyline was the most inconsistent. So you start off and then you see her decide she's like, okay, no, I am not going to lead this. I will not lead people to die. And then they're like, well, you know, you're the best chance of us surviving this, right? And then she's like, okay, fine, then I'll go, you know. <laughs> and then and then you know, and then they go and she never like I think that it's the fact that she never stands firm enough, but she also likes to act like she is standing really firm. So her character has all these like ups and downs. And then like at the end, she's, they, they build this kind of like somewhat of a romantic thing that she has with one of the other guys. I can't remember what he does. Oh, um, with, uh, Sebastian. Sebastian. Yeah. Sebastian played by uh, Raul Bova. And it's kind of like they create this thing where they have this bond. So so she suddenly is like, she doesn't care about anybody else, obviously. And But she's all about, you know, we're going to survive this. Everything I do has to be surviving and, like, well calculated and all that stuff. And then, like, and then, like, at the end, it's just like, but by the time it's, she's, she's like, she loses this person. and And then suddenly it's like, Okay, the friend of my friend is my enemy. I have to do this now. And then she's just like, it's just kind of like, I don't think anybody, I know that it's a movie and, you know, if you're a tough ass bitch, you're going to be like super shut down your emotions and just keep going, right? But it was like, she had that moment of like, oh no, I can't lose you. And then suddenly it was like, okay, we're going to do this. You have to trust me. And then the predator is just like, okay, I'm going to trust you, human. You were worthy because you did this. I'm kind of yeah. like, you know, I was like, I was like at that part, I was kind of like when they bonded as like, they were like, okay, well, we're going to do this together. The whole part of him, like giving her weapons with the Xenomorph parts and stuff were really cool. Um, oh, yeah, it's definitely really cool. I bet she but didn't then, really know, do anything to earn the respect yeah, of him because he's basically yeah. saves her ass and it's sort of like, the only thing yeah. that I can see that she does it is the fact that she gives him his gun back, which they stole in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And and it was also the fact that, like, it was like she kind of did fight the Xenomorph. But then if you think about it, you're in the same room as these two people and the Predator is your better chance of survival. I'm guessing anybody out of self-defense would have killed it. If you had the ability to, right? Yeah. So is it really doing it out of survival or out of the fact that it's a deed to 
this person that she wants to earn the trust to. So I like the logic falls apart a little there, right? Yeah. And and that's one of the that's one of the problems is that like there's a lot of circumstantial things like like the environment works and um you know just the scene and how they shoot this and everything everything works really well the story of the predator works really well but then you know it's like the human characters let this movie down a lot because it shifts a lot like there's a lot of it's not just her like other characters also have this inconsistency although i think to be honest we may we we noticed something that was really uh, funny that you might like well, I don't know if you noticed it, but, you know, Colin Salmon, Salmon I think, yeah. is the guy that you don't like. I'll tell you why I don't like him is because he always sounds like he's putting on a fake-ass accent. Oh. It's sort of like, oh, I'm going to do a British accent. And he's just so, he just comes off so fucking smug all the time. He's all like, just <laughs> die already. <laughs> and he does. And in, just like in Resident <laughs> Evil, he gets diced. It is so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um... Yeah, it kind of sounds just annoying, but at the same time, we've also got uh, we've got Euron Bremner, who I also who is probably best known for playing Spud on uh, in Train Spotting as uh, the chemical engineer of the of the team, and he's just irritating here. This googly eyed, supposed comedic relief, but it wasn't much of a relief to myself. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, Lance Henderson's, I mean, he's a working actor. I mean, he he's so dedicated to turn up in these things. And he, here he does a really good job. And I love the fact he does little nods to the Bishop character, such as we see him doing, like, the knife game with uh, his pen when he's in his office. And it's such a little, little nod there, which is really cool. But, yeah, I mean, obviously, back to when we look at um, Alexa and the Predator, their little teaming up moment i was sure that they were going to high five it's so stupid um and then even, <laughs> even before this we do obviously get like moments we get to see like the predator code of honor in effect such as the fact that when we see lance henderson's character goes to attack the predator and he's like held up by the predator and he can see using his uh scanning inside that he's obviously dying of lung cancer and that the predator won't sees that sees that he's there's no reason to attack him He's, as I said, he's not someone who is um, able, like a, like hundred percent, like a, a yeah. it would be honourable for him to to kill him in battle. And we see saw this in Predator Two, where uh, the female police officer isn't killed because he, the Predator can see that she's pregnant. So the only way to kill her would be to effectively kill an an, an infant, which again goes against their code of honour. So it was great to see the fact that Anson worked this in, but. I'm sure he was like trying to do the same for these the prime between the predator and uh and Alexa, but the only thing I could come up with, I mean this is like I don't know, the third or fourth time I've seen this now, is the fact that it's just the fact he's down to those two that it's lack of options that they've teamed up. But even then why we have the predator marking her with like the warrior's mark, uh, which serves no purpose and is certainly not earned in the slightest. Um, until and plays no sort of real purpose until we get to the end and the rest of the predators decide to show up after all the work's done. <laughs> well, like, no, I mean they didn't they didn't have a hunt they didn't have to go to the proving grounds. Those are the grandpas, you know. They were the aunts and uncles of this guy, right? So so it was yeah. nothing like you know. 
it's just really funny because, you know, you have that. There's a lot of moments in this where it doesn't. It's like near the end, like that big scene in the end after they team up and everything till the end just is really it goes really off the rails dumb. You know, like there are so many moments that don't make sense. And, you know, I I kind of see like the merit in them doing this, but I think it's just executed really badly because they didn't build the characters properly. And, like, the scenario didn't really make sense. And then you have, like, you know, this this thing is, like, it's like suddenly the Predator had no reason to do it. And I have, I guess he did, but, I, I mean, he had no reason to take off his mask at the end. Like, I did not understand why he took it off. They they just they just do that. Because it, it just made him more vulnerable. That was the only <laughs> reason for it. It was contrived. It was, like... It was like, it was, that had to happen in order for him to become more vulnerable. And, like, she had, like, no reaction. You know, I mean, both the xenomorphs and and predators are super ugly. They are, like, horribly <laughs> ugly. And she had, like, no reaction to it. And I'm just like, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that she should. It's polite not to. But I know I mean, what you're like, saying. Cause... She didn't even have any, like, shock, you know, like. I would have been, like, at least, like, if I was in her place, if you saw something like this for the first time, you would have a kind of, like, shock in your mind, even if it's, like, a flash in your eyes, you know? Oh, I totally, I mean, I totally understand what you're saying, because obviously in Predator 1 and Predator 2, uh, both Danny Glover and Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, they remark on how ugly the Predators are. It's, it's always been, like, been remarked upon. But, yeah, it made no sense. I mean, up to this point, I don't believe the Predators have been seen unmasked by any of the humans, so... It made no sense uh, for them to, for her not to have some sort of reaction. Um, I mean, yes, it, you expect something of her, but I don't think you ever expect what a predator actually looks like um, the first time you see it. It's, well, as I say, it's a kind of aggressive, obviously, with that mandible mouth for a start. So. <laughs> um, when we obviously like look to look at the design work for the predator and the alien, this one. Um, this also becomes a bit of a bugbear because the Predators are portrayed as like these hulking giants, which, yes, they are obviously tall. But here, whenever they move, it's always like these big stomping movements and like the camera shakes. And it's sort of like, yeah, they, they were kind of a little more graceful before because they were like <laughs> they were swinging around the trees or moving like swiftly through like the urban jungle. Um, but here they're like big hulking, like, uh, creatures like the ground shakes when they run and it always seems to be in slow motion when we have these two fights and I, I, I guess I kind of appreciate the fact that we haven't got the same sort of frantic cuts that we have like in the later Resident Evil movies where it just like, went insane every time we got <laughs> an action scene here at least we get to see we get to see some fun action. We get to see the Predators pull out some new toys. Um, we get to see like aliens thrown across the room and like smashed into walls i think there's a, a great scene where an alien swung around by its tail and it's like basically smashed against four pillars uh yeah. which is really really cool and the predators the aliens i mean themselves they're seen while we when we saw them obviously in like the previous ones like aliens in particular where they seemed a lot weaker and i have to say the clone of marines did a lot better than the the predators do and they have less impressive equipment for a start <laughs> but these uh, these aliens, I mean, they really Anson really sort of he doesn't try and 
change anything with them. I mean, they're still like the sneaky sort of predators. They hide in the shadows. They blend with the environment and they use all the advantages they have, like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the tail and the mandible jaws and um, the acid for blood, which continues to be a real pain in the ass <laughs> when you <laughs> these things. So I appreciate the fact that he also marked out his own sort of little favorite amongst the aliens because we have one the aliens gets caught in a net and it has like a grid pattern formed in the yeah, head. Yeah. He then uses that damaged alien to like, oh, this is the leader of these. And we see like the hive mind more in play than we've seen in other films in the series, which is yeah, really yeah. great to see as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, while I don't appreciate how the predators portray with their movement, I liked all the usual predator things that we have here and certainly gives us some interesting new mass designs for the mm-hmm. uh, free, free predators we have here. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I get where you're going. I, I think that, I think that the alien, it's like I said, like the humans are the, the downfall of the film. Whereas like the alien aliens and the predators kind of clash were really fun. I really like those fighting scenes and whatever they came upon, like up against each other. It, you know, I just wonder if there would have been a possibility of doing a film like this without actually having surviving humans. Like it would be like <laughs> a no dialogue sort of film, but it might be a pretty fun sort of like a <laughs> versus battle. I don't know. Maybe we could do that in Mortal Kombat one day. Just for I, the hell. <laughs> the hell I just of it. kind of, um, when you say this, I kind of imagine the scene where the, the critters are talking to each other in critters, and it's like, oh, they've got guns, and cheese rex, <laughs> and he like, comes in the sometimes a bit bombing it. But at the same time, I can see like your summer blockbuster audience going, what the hell is this? I have to read a movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I was going to go and see, see, the, see the punchy, kicky alien movie, not the half to highbrow reading movie. The alien foreign language <laughs> movie, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think Anderson... I mean, I, first of all, I don't think he really had the budget to be messing around with the franchise to that extent. I mean, here yeah. he's making a film for $60 million. Uh, The film turns into profit at $172.5 million, So it's a good good day to be Anderson. It's always a good day if your film doesn't bomb. <laughs> it's surprising the fact that he didn't want to obviously come back and do another, and it was obviously he went over to do Room, which I think a lot of people saw as being more what they wanted uh, from from the film, less than an adventure movie, just sort of more alien hunts predator um, in the city. There's so much in this film I'm willing to sort of forgive, especially now I've seen it a few times, I know what I'm getting into. But as I said, the character of Alexa, I just... She's oh, a <laughs> self-forgivable. And I think, I don't know whether it's because in... Because, as I said, it the bond between her and Predator doesn't come off that believable. And for her to be seen as the female predator, uh, so to speak, it it makes no sense. But well, we obviously compare it to in the, the book's original female uh, predator, which was uh, Makisho Noguchi, who's a female colonist who um, basically survives this group of predators and is brought a, brought into a predator society. It's like the token human, and she gets like her own predator armor, and uh, it has like constantly battle against these other predators to retain her standing within this sort of society. And that would have been an interesting way to go if she had been like on that sort of level, but. As I said, she's just so cold. She's so unlikable. But she wasn't, like... Like, Alexa wasn't even brought with them, right? Like, she... They didn't bring her... They didn't take her along. 
did they? No. She's 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 basically left in the Antarctic. Yeah, exactly, she's, right? She's left to go like, back to the boat, which... I was I, like, they work so hard to build this bond between Predator and Alexa. Yeah. And... They didn't even, like, you know, there were moments I thought it was like, oh, my God, this is going to be, you know, like a, a, a cool, cool bonding. And they could have just, like, you know, it would have worked out, right, I guess. I don't know. I think, I yeah, I mean, yeah, I can see what you're saying, that you would have thought that she would have gone off with the Predators at the end. That would have been really cool. Um, yeah. Obviously, the way the film ends with the body of the, the final Predator, he's like, as I said, he's killed in, in battle at the end. Yeah. And we see he gets the warrior, the warrior's death. He's like carried off onto the ship and like yeah. put on, uh, put on the, I don't know, the altar, so to speak. And then we see obviously the, the alien burst out of his chest because from what I'm led to believe, that was put in because fans wanted to see it. They wanted to see the alien burst well, out of yeah. his chest, see what it creates because. Yeah, but. Might- I mean, I mean, it's kind of like the surprise ending because he was attacked by a face hugger and you wonder why the effects hadn't gotten to him yet yeah. and it'd been like a super long time. So I guess like his body was able to fight it off a lot more. But I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know the reasoning behind it, but it is it. I, I actually found it kind of cheesy um, ending to end like that with the bursting and it felt kind of ridiculous. But I don't know it's- if that leads into like the second film. It does, um, yeah. It's, yeah, um, it does, right? Because I honestly, I've, I saw uh, Requiem such a long time ago that I don't, I don't remember anything from it. From what we're led to believe, the Pred alien that we see at the end basically erupts out of its chest, and it it apparently kills all the predators on on board this this ship, and the ship crashes into this small rural town, and aliens are basically run amok over the town, um, and this Pred alien's going round and uh doing its thing and we've got an we got another predator that's come in that's like brought into the town to act as like the cleanup crew okay um which again is an interesting aspect the fact they send one i mean we have three for this hunt so why they to send one to to do a whole town i don't know but <laughs> maybe maybe the budget was uh the budget of proto hq wasn't so good that month it's all like <laughs> You know, we really want like to help you out, Gary, but you know, <laughs> hands are tied here. We got a, we got a lot of investments here and things. So. We, we lost too many. You just got a deal. <laughs> yeah, um, here it ends as like a nice little stinger at the end. It's all like, oh look, you you get to see the pred alien, and it's like on the mandible. It's an alien, but it's got mandible jaws, same as a predator, and it's you know, it it looks cool. I don't know. Um. <laughs> The final battle between obviously with with Lex and the Surviving Predator versus the the Queen Alien, I think was really, really, really cool. Um, yeah. especially because it takes place in the whaling village. So yeah. we get this absolutely monstrous sized queen and the only other time we've really seen a queen battle is obviously the iconic Ripley in the power armor, uh, power loader armor versus the, the queen on board the ship and it was Obviously limited by the abilities of the effects at the time, and it, it looks really cool, and it serves its purpose at the time. But obviously here now we've got some we can use CGI effects. We have this like towering monster queen just like smashing through buildings, and um, I think it's it's it was really cool to actually see an alien, you know, not defeated by being knocked out of an airlock, <laughs> which seems to always <laughs> be the way it goes in those films. So 
when when you apparently if you don't have an airlock a frozen lake will do <laughs> and part of me always just thought freeze like, it that's the only thing you can do just freeze its ass you know that's it, all it is yeah part of me like uh for the when they started talking in the sequel your mind goes it's like is it this alien queen that we see at the bottom there does she like get free and like turn up somewhere else like like the currents floated downstream somewhere so but no it wasn't uh the case to be we just got some we got some generic nonsense so <laughs> um let's talk a bit about the cast here because i mean this is a real international cast we have here we've got as i said we've got scottish actors we've got english actors we've got um uh, americans we've got european actors in particular we've got agafe de la Bolleine. Um, who plays a deal, also known as the mercenary with a cool hair. And it's, it's a shame really because we have so many interesting like characters here that is almost on the same level of like the alien saga, which where you constantly have like you would have all these interesting sort of characters. And here we have interesting characters, but they're either killed off way too quick or just never given any development to really sort of flesh out. And it, it was again, this is just one of the more frustrating aspects: the fact that we are introduced to this team, but we're never, even if they are going to be disposable fodder, you know, it'd be nice to know a little bit about them and get some sort of, you know, uh, depth to their characters, but it just never suddenly happens. Yeah, well, I mean, the only one where, you know, we have a little bit of depth is with um, uh, Ewan Bremner, and when he gets trapped with, uh, what's his face there? Um I'd like to say Tommy Flanagan. I don't know. So when he's, um, yeah, when he's, I think it was, yeah. it was Tommy. Yeah. Was. yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, so like those two, they were, you know, they kind of had a little bit more of a, a swap in their position, whereas like they were the unlikely two who got trapped together. One is kind of like a wuss and the other <laughs> one is, uh, <laughs> the other one's supposed to be this badass guy and then they fall into this, this shifting, shifting, uh, I don't know what you call it, shifting corridors or something, and they get trapped in this little space. And I think that that part is really genius in the, in the sense that it's really smart how they structured it. But, I mean, like, you see these two characters, and then they start talking about, like, you know, um, uh, Ewan Bremner is, like, is, like, moving telling this guy like well we have kids we don't have the luxury to to give up sort of thing right and then it takes like four seconds later and then they're all killed off you know <laughs> so it's, it's it's kind of like really ridiculous because they give you these smart like these good moments that could potentially be like kind of like a a bonding moment where they could use these characters a little bit further but I think it's just maybe it's the restriction of how they wanted the movie to go in a certain direction and they were heading towards there that they created these characters and just killed it off. And the main impact of this scene was really to like every single depth death was to show a certain aspect of this elaborate um, temple uh, like these this proving grounds that they have. And I think that, you know, in that sense, it's good. But it also, like like I said, it makes the humans incredibly disposable. So you don't really care for them anymore. And when you put a movie like that, it's kind of like, well, who do you care for then? Like, <laughs> what am I watching this for? Am I watching this for someone to get out of this alive? Or am I watching for 
like one or the other side, yeah. like who, whichever fanboy or Mora for aliens or predators to get out, to come out on top. Well, you know, like it's kind of blurry <laughs> on a movie like that. I was the, the poster does say whoever wins, we lose. So, uh, but I think, and I don't know why they, why they put that. Cause I mean, the predators aren't, they, they hunt humans for sport. They don't hunt as a conquering race. Um, cause obviously when, when predators hunt humans, I mean, they collect skulls obviously as, as, uh, trophies. And I don't ever understood why, why they, uh, chose to go with that tagline because I said, yes, if the aliens win, we lose, but unless they're obviously referring to the fact that the predators are just really sore losers and blow, <laughs> have a tendency to nuke ancient civilizations when they lose this battle. I don't know. Maybe that's what they're hinting at. Uh, for viewing. This is obviously a bit more of a difficult one. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you kind of want to go, just go watch the franchise, read the books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I mean, it seems like, it seems like, you know, if you haven't seen Predators, um, Predator, the Predator franchise or the Alien franchise, obviously those are the obvious go-tos. Just to, you know, you know, I, I think, you know, all the movies are pretty decent. Obviously, there are some that are worse and some people don't like other ones. Um I mean, same with Predator. I also think that Predators was a good choice because it's a little bit more self-contained. Um, I mean, if you really, like, we mentioned a few titles already. Like, obviously, The Thing is a really good one to watch because it's kind of it's kind of like what the Wayland Village is built on. Um, that sort of stuff. I mean, I... I mean, I would say if you want some, a little bit adventurous, I mean, I would talked about The Mummy. Um, that could be a good one to watch. Or any of the Tomb Raiders, I guess. Because, you know, I actually had a, a thought in my mind. I was like, um, I was like, you know, what would have happened if Anderson directed Tomb Raider? Would that have been different? Because it feels like he would have been really fitting for the role. Anyways. I might have mentioned that in Resident Evil, but either way. <laughs> Is it just because it's a comic book? It's a video game movie and he hasn't directed it. That we want no, to see but it I actually, because no, because I thought that like the way he created the temples was really smart. Yeah. And I think that that's the layout behind like a Lara Croft adventure is having like smart um, tombs that she goes into. And there's like these interesting stories and it feels like he could really be a really good director to make a movie like that. Myself, I'm going to go with the 1998 film Deep Rising, directed by Stephen Sommers. Uh, this is basically a, a haunted ship movie. Uh, basically, a group of mercenaries are going to rob a luxury cruise liner called the Ogrenauta, only to get on board and find that the crew and everyone has mysteriously disappeared. Um, of course, it's not long before they discover the the big bad monster that's basically consumed everyone, and it soon becomes a fun little uh, alien-style adventure as they attempt to escape the ship and uh, avoid being eaten alive by this uh, monster that's uh, taken on board. This is actually a, a fun little adventure, adventure sort of horror movie, um, and one which has a cliffhanger which sorely made me want to see a sequel to this which never happened um but no this is a really fun fun movie i mean it's uh stars treat williams from america johnson and anthony harold um and i think if you enjoyed this film or just like looking for something similar to like alien um then deep rising's got a lot of fun moments and it's actually got a couple of shocks that 
caught me by surprise, even as someone who normally get, can sort of pit, sort of see when things are uh, coming up, um, especially in terms of jump scares, I think uh, then it's definitely a, a really good one to uh, check out. Awesome. Yeah. I've never seen it before, so <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know what we're watching. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, that obviously brings us to the end of another edition of Booze and Tea. Thank you, as always, for listening. Kim, where are we going to go next? Next movie we're going, we're jumping to 2008 with uh, Death Race. This time, obviously, the cast gets a little bit more of a star title as we get... Um, well, I mean, we had, we did have the other one before, right? With Kurt Russell. But we get a big star title here with like, um, Jason Satham, uh, being the, the main actor here. Uh, Death Race is like set in this dystopian world where, um, he gets sent to, he, he gets framed into being, <laughs> to sent into this jail where they have to fight for, they have to do these death races to their freedom kind of thing, I guess. Do yep. they even get, yeah, exactly. It's a remake of a rework in a Roger Corman's classic Death Race 2000. Uh, this time replacing the cross country race where people have run over for points. Uh, this time now it is races take place within a prison as Jason Stevens framed race car driver is forced to take part in the death races as the warden star attraction um, in order to try and win his freedom while going up against the gangster machine gun Joe and uh, any number of colorful races that uh, she's gathered for this season of death races um this is anderson's other franchise <laughs> to say the least uh so and it's one of my favorites of his filmography um and one that i'm really looking forward to uh to talking about uh on the next episode if you haven't done already please do hit that like or subscribe button if you're listening to us on automatic or itunes or stitcher wherever you happen to be listening to us we are pretty much everywhere now um, also, uh, you know, you can, you can, uh, check us out on our blog, which is movies and tea podcast.wordpress.com. Thank you, Kim. And, uh, on there, you can find our complete archive of episodes, uh, to date. So you can listen to all the episodes of season one. You can also re- check out some fun writing, uh, pieces for myself and Kim, uh, on the works of, uh, Paul W. S. Anderson and other related subjects. So, um, yeah. And, if you want to see, uh, want to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, we are on there as well as Instagram as well. Um, so please uh, do uh, hit those likes and subscribe in there. Maybe you know, maybe leave us some nice comments, some feedback. Let us know what uh, you think of Paul Dubois and some films and uh, the films we've also been discussing this season. We would uh, love to hear from yourself. But until next time, 